Please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians, we will be in chapter 15. This is one of two, possibly three letters that we we have two of the letters that Paul wrote to the church in Corinth. This is his first letter to them. He had planted the church there in Corinth. And after a time after he left, he wrote a letter to them to deal with some issues that they were having there in the church. But we pick up here now at the end of this letter to the to the church of Corinth in first Corinthians chapter 15. We'll read verses one through 19. Hear the word of the Lord. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. That Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day, according to the scriptures, and that he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally born. For I am the least of the apostles and do not deserve to, do not even deserve to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace to me was not without effect. No, I worked harder than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. Whether then it was I or they, this is what we preach, and this is what you believed. But if it is preached that Christ has been raised from the dead, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised from the dead. And if Christ has not been raised from the dead, our preaching is useless, and so is your faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that he raised Christ from the dead. But he did not raise him if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope in Christ, We are to be pitied more than all men. Let us pray. Our God and Father above, you know the road each of us has traveled to get here today. You know the paths that our weeks have taken. You know the struggles that we carry here today. You know the difficulties that we carry here today. Speak into them with your word. Help us to set ourselves aside, to open ourselves to the work of the Spirit through your word so that we may be changed, so that we may be edified, so that we may be encouraged in the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I pray this in Jesus name. Amen. I do kind of love the the two letters to the church of Corinth. They are. Kind of messy and gritty. Paul worked in in Acts chapter 18. We see the planting of the church of Corinth. In the previous chapter, Paul met the 
the philosophers and thinkers in Athens. He gathered them together in the in the area of discourse. It would be what we would consider to be a, a gathering hall in a college or something like that today. He met them there. He proclaimed the gospel in a in a clear way and was met with laughter and derision and, and a handful of converts, not even enough, we're told, to to begin a church there in Athens. And so he moved on to Corinth and Corinth was an, an interesting town. It was kind of similar to Athens in the fact that it did have an educated portion of town, but it was also a, a port city, a city where a lot of the ships bringing trade and goods into Greece would dock. And it was a sailor's town as well. And all the things that come along with being a sailor's town, although my dad would have taken issue with me saying that as he was in the Navy. Corinth grew into a city that if you wanted to describe somebody who had gone from living a moral, ethical life, a life that we would consider them to be a good person, and then changed at some point in their life to lead a life of debauchery and debasement, the adjective that you would use for them is they were Corinthianized. That is the city which Paul went to after he left Athens, the metropolis. And it is there that God gave him great success in the gospel ministry. And he planted this church that grew and grew quickly. And they grew on the foundation of the gospel. And then Paul left after time. That was his modus operandi, his MO. He would plant a church, stay for a time, and then move on to the next city, leaving People there. Well, he got a report from the Corinthians and it was apparently a long report because Paul deals with at least 20 controversies in first Corinthians that had grown up in the church. But he saves the most important for last. And it is the most important because it is foundational to what we believe as Christians, to what the Corinthians believed as Christians. And there was a a problem that had crept up in Corinth that was probably the foundation of a lot of the other problems. Paul explains the problem in somewhat positive terms by reminding them, saying, this is what I preach to you. This was what the most important thing that I gave to you while I was there. And the most important thing that he gave to them was a a three-legged stool, so to speak. The first leg of the stool is that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures. We could go back to scriptures like Isaiah 52 and 53, where the servant of the Lord is the one who takes the stripes, takes the beating, takes the death for our sins, for our transgression. We could go even further back into the sacrificial system of the Israelites and see that life must be given. Blood must be shed for the forgiveness of sins. And Paul says that is the first part of the message, the gospel, the good news that I preached to you was that Jesus died for our sins, according to the scriptures. If we were to read through the scriptures of the Old Testament, it would be clear to us through the work of the Holy Spirit. It would be clear to us that we have violated God's laws, that we are sinners and transgressors before God and we deserve his just displeasure. And there is nothing that we can do. There is no amount of laws that we can keep. There are no amount of good deeds that we can give in order to overcome our deserving of judgment before God. 
And Paul says Jesus died so that we might be reconciled to God, so that our sins might be forgiven, so that the over and over sacrifice of the animals might not have to be done anymore, so that we might have true reconciliation with God, even though we cannot do it ourselves. The second leg of this stool of the gospel, the foundation of what the Corinthians were to believe, is that he was buried. It sounds odd for us to hear. I mean, if somebody died, isn't that what we would normally do? Is we would bury this person? Paul here is highlighting the fact that Jesus was dead. If you've ever seen The Princess Bride, if you've ever listened to me, you've probably heard me use this before, but, you know, Wesley has been, has been has been killed and his friends take him to the to the miracle worker and they say our friend is dead can you do something and the miracle worker looks over him and says oh he's not dead he's just mostly dead Paul puts in here that he was buried to remind us that Jesus was dead rumors have crept up throughout the history since the resurrection that Jesus had just merely passed out there on the cross and after a time of recovery there in the tomb, after a, a, a 36 hour nap, he just got up and walked out. He was never really dead. But in telling us here that he was buried, Paul is saying he was completely dead. Everything that we deserve because of our sin, the death that we deserved, Jesus experienced. And then the third leg of the gospel stool, the foundation of everything that Paul had built that church there in Corinth upon is the resurrection of Jesus. And he, and he doesn't just go through the resurrection of Jesus. He says it was a witnessed resurrection. He said he appeared according to he appeared to Peter and then to the twelve. The disciples saw Jesus. We're reminded of the story throughout the gospels of of Peter and of the women going to the tomb and then finding it empty, find the stone rolled away, the guards gone, the seal removed, finding the tomb empty, going to the disciples, Peter and John running to the tomb, John winning the race, Peter finally saying, who cares? We're the only ones here. Nobody will ever know. And John says, watch this. And then writing it down in his gospel. And the tomb being empty. And the disciples gathering, not knowing exactly what to do, hiding, huddling in that room, waiting to be arrested. And then Jesus walking through the door, saying hello, eating with them. Thomas missing it the first time, Thomas seeing him again the second time Jesus came. He appeared to the twelve. Well, if that wasn't enough, if twelve people was not enough for you, he says, he appeared to more than 500, 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. Why would he put that in there, that most of whom are still living? He says that so that if you're ever passing through Palestine, if you're ever passing through the Holy Land and somebody says, hey, I think so and so actually saw Jesus raised from the dead. You could go to them and you could ask. This was like saying, hey, you have an opportunity for witness testimony. You have an opportunity to talk to an eyewitness. And then he says, Jesus appeared last of all to me, even though I did not deserve it. Paul was one who persecuted the church. He describes himself as a Pharisee of Pharisees. He describes himself as 
as the, the, the smartest of religious scholars of his time. And he was on his way to Damascus with letters of permission to arrest and to persecute followers of the way, people who had joined the church, who had followed Jesus' message. And it was on his way there that Jesus appeared to him, literally knocking him to the, to the ground and converting him in a very real, in a very dramatic way. And he says, you can ask me because even I am an eyewitness of the resurrected Christ. And if you don't believe my eyewitness testimony, look at my life. I was one who hated Jesus. I was one who hated the church. I hated everything about the church and about the message of the gospel. And yet here I am giving my life to proclaim the gospel. And he says that is the most important message for you to understand and to build upon. But. Some of you in the church. Are throwing out that third leg of the stool. You're saying that there is no resurrection from the dead. And this has some pretty serious implications for the Christians there in Corinth, not only for the Christians, but for for the disciples as well. The first implication, he says, is that if this is not true, if there is no resurrection of the dead, then Jesus did not raise from the dead. Then our preaching is worthless. Bart Ehrman was a man who grew up in the church and when he went to college and worked on his was working on his Ph.D. and studying the Greek language, he he turned his back on his belief, on his faith. And he says, I don't understand and I haven't understood for years why men and in his denomination that he was in, women stand in the pulpit and proclaim something they do not believe in. They stand in the pulpit and proclaim the resurrection of Christ. And he said, I don't get it. These people know better. Not talking about me. He's talking about people in other denominations. They know better and yet they proclaim a lie. That's what Paul's saying here. If Jesus did not raise from the dead, I stand before you, the disciples stand before you and proclaim lies. The disciples died. All the disciples save John died for what they proclaimed. How many people do you know that would die for a lie? Who would give their life willingly for a lie? He said, not only that, but what we teach you about God is wrong too. Because God is the one that told us He was risen from the dead. God is the one who raised Him from the dead. And if we're teaching a lie, then you can't believe anything about God either. So it's it's vanity for preachers to proclaim something that is not true. But then he says something else. He throws it to the Corinthians. He says, if the resurrection is not true, you're wasting your time too. Why do we pursue righteousness? Why do we pursue a life of holiness Well, because God told us to and because in the power of the resurrected Jesus Christ, we have the power to do that. Paul says, y'all proclaim the resurrection is not true. What's the point of everything you pursue? If Christ is not raised from the dead. Later on in the in the chapter, he's going to say it comes there in verse 32. He says, if Christ is not raised from the dead, then we might as well live. By the mantra, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. 
If Christ is not raised from the dead, there is no hope for us. If Christ is not raised from the dead, we are wasting our time. We would be better off sleeping in on a Sunday morning than wasting our time here at church. But then Paul goes on in the rest of chapter 15. And he says, but it is true. It's true because I've seen it. It's true because the disciples seen it. It's true because the 500 has seen it. It's true because God has done it and God is good and God is trustworthy. And here's what it means for you. It means life is hard. But there's glory on its way. Many of us gathered here on Friday night, we we sang songs and read scriptures and talked about the death of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And hopefully we left here with the weight of what he gave so that we might have the forgiveness of sins, carrying that weight, wondering what hope there is in the fact that our Savior has died. Paul says our life is difficult. Our life is hard. Our pursuit of holiness is difficult. But because Jesus has raised from the dead, we have a glorious hope ahead of us. Have you ever pursued something important in your life? Maybe it was a degree. Maybe it was some some continuing education and a, a, a certification in the job that you had. Maybe it was just struggling with your teenagers as they grew up. But you struggled. You made it through the difficulty. Why? Because you had that hope of the degree. You had the hope of the certification. You had the hope of a responsible adult at the end of that struggle. Paul says the hope that we have is the resurrected Christ. The resurrected Savior. The resurrected Jesus That we are going to struggle through our pursuit of holiness. We are going to struggle through this life, but we have glory awaiting us. And what is the guarantee of that glory? It is the resurrected Savior. It is our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who has ascended into heaven, who is no longer in the tomb, who is raised and glorified. Paul says at the beginning of this passage, for what I received, I passed on to you. As of first importance, we get the first part that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. We get the second part that he was dead, that he was buried. But sometimes we negotiate the third part. That he was raised on the third day. Because that's just something that doesn't happen on a regular basis. But brothers and sisters, that is our hope. We worship a God who is true. We worship a God who is truth. And he has raised his son from the dead so that we might have the hope of an eternal life before God. Let us pray. Our gracious God and Holy Father, we do thank you for the glory of the resurrection. We thank you for our salvation that was secured on the cross and in the glory of the resurrection. Help us to live in the hope that we have because of your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.